Hi, welcome to The Patient Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Moore, and I'm excited to have you here today. The Patient Podcast is a series of conversations with innovators, HR leaders, and benefit advisors about how they're solving today's toughest benefit challenges and how they're building healthier communities by helping people access and afford healthcare. Let's get started. Today, we're talking about out-of-pocket medical expense and the power of preventive care, and we're excited to welcome Dr. Eric Bricker. Dr. Bricker is an internal medicine physician and a former co-founder and chief medical officer of Compass Professional Health Services. Compass is a healthcare navigation service that grew to more than 2,000 clients, including T-Mobile, Southwest Airlines, and Chili's Maggiano's Restaurants. After leaving Compass Healthcare, Dr. Bricker started a YouTube channel, A Healthcare Z. This offers healthcare finance videos and has over 100,000 views per month across all platforms. In June of 2022, Dr. Bricker became medical director of Simple Pay Health. Please join me as we welcome Dr. Bricker to the Patient Podcast. Really excited to be here with you today. We have a guest who I'm I'm uh, delighted to introduce here in just a moment. But first of all, as always, I'm joined by my co-host Jr. Clark. Jr., what's going on today? How how are things going with you? Things are going well. And Jay, I, I think uh, things are going very well for you. I'm going to answer something for you or tell the audience something they don't know about you. Oh, no. You, yeah, you're actually in Las Vegas right now. And I think what our, our listeners don't know about you is that, what was it, three or four months ago, you decided that you were going to take up the hobby of trying to play the perfect round of blackjack? <laughs> well, okay. And so, <laughs> and so, and so you uh, spent some time studying the math behind it, right? And yeah. And, and like, uh, yeah, thanks for bringing this up, JR. It's, uh, it's great for our listeners to know that, you know, I'm a degenerate over here in Las Vegas. So I'm, I'm here for a conference, uh, here for work. Just want to make sure to, to clarify that there are blackjack tables nearby. If I happen to sit down at one and play a few hands of blackjack, I mean, I can't be blamed. That's how you network at these things. You have to, you have to sit down and, and, uh, talk with people and, and see what they're doing. But yes, you know, blackjack is a game that's been mathematically solved. And if you memorize all the tables and charts, you can make the perfect moves. And even though the house always wins, no matter what it is that you do, you can maybe last a few more minutes and sit at that table and have conversations with dealers. So it's pretty fun. And, you know, Vegas is really nice this this uh, time of year. It's hot outside, of course, because it's the desert, but it's beautiful and we're having a great time. So, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the, the summer plan here is to go out to a few conferences and meet some people. How about you, Jay? Are you been any place good this summer? You got any vacation plans coming up? Well, so no, no concrete plan set. But, you know, one of the things that I want to do as a kind of a dad aspiration is that before my kids leave our house, I want them to have visited like at least the 48 contiguous uh, United States. And so so this summer we're planning on taking a little trip to knock out you know another six or so states. And when I say visit, like if you just drive through a state, that doesn't count as a visit. You have to actually right. do something meaningful in a state to where it's memorable. So, you know, that's the goal. So we're going to go hit a few more states this summer. And I think you mentioned this is going to help a lot with the game that you play with your extended family, the game of trying to find every single license plate. You and I were together and you got unreasonably excited that you found a license plate from, uh, was it Rhode, Rhode Island? Island. Rhode yeah. Island. Yes. Believe it or not, Rhode Island in, in the middle part of the United States, Rhode Island is harder to find than Hawaii. Is that true? Is it harder to find than Hawaii or have you just gotten lucky? Again, going back to the Blackjack conversation, sometimes it appears to be like that there's a pattern. There's actually not. So are you sure about, have you studied this, JR? Well, so I'll say this. We have probably 
five or six years worth of data points on this in our family. And Rhode Island is usually the last state. So I'm going to go with I mean, uh, it's it's that's, you know, statistically significant enough for my liking. Right. Yes. Well, I, you know, I'm not going to argue with an actuary. If you say it's statistically significant, then it is. There you go, folks. That's your healthcare tip for the day. The state of Rhode Island is the hardest license plate to find right in to us here and let us know when the last time you saw a Rhode Island license plate was. But Jr. is going to see one because maybe Rhode Island is one of those states he's going to go visit here in a bit. I guess we should get to it, right? We've we've got a guest who's sitting here listening to us, and I'm sure he's rolling his eyes by now. Like, what have I gotten myself into? Who are these people? Um, What kind of podcast is this? But I am super excited to introduce Dr. Eric Bricker to the podcast today. He is our guest. Dr. Bricker runs an amazing YouTube channel, which is free to subscribe to and has all sorts of facts about healthcare delivery in the U.S., and how benefits are set up and designed, and how it affects all of us as patients and providers and organizations, and so many interesting things that I've learned from listening to Dr. Bricker. And I'm not going to spoil the surprises by talking about him too much more. I'm going to just introduce him here. Hey, Dr. Bricker, glad to have you. Thanks for being here. Hey, thank you for having me, uh, Jay and JR. Super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. When is the last time you saw a Rhode Island license plate? Has it been a while? (laughs) <laughs> well, so I'm here in Texas and people move from all over the country to Texas. So uh-huh. every once in a while, every few months, the, I can tell you it's the ocean state. It says that on the license plate. Wow. We've got a license plate pro here. Uh, yeah, you, you need to sign him up. Like he's the ringer for your game. He's going to figure out all the license plates before you guys. Just live in Texas and you'll see license plates all, all the time from all over the place. So, Dr. Bricker, you are a physician like me, and I think uh, it'd be great if you could just describe a little bit about your career path and how you got to where you are and how you went from, you know, med school, all of us as our our little med school selves with so many aspirations and hopes and dreams. And and then we wind up doing what we're doing. And it's kind of a surprise to me where I've wound up, and I'm sure it is for you, too. So tell us a little bit about your career and and how you got to where you are and what you're doing these days. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll I'll make it brief but I will start at the beginning. So I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., right next door to the National Institutes of Health. And by coincidence, we had a family friend in our church who worked there, who when I was 16 said, hey, we've got this summer internship job that pays $9 an hour. And I was like, I'm just mowing lawns. So if I can be in air conditioning and make $9 an hour, then I will take it. And the rest is history. So um, the, the head of that lab was, was, was a woman. It was a, a female-run lab. I was the only man in the lab. And I loved you know, medical science, et cetera, et cetera, but I also loved people. And so the head of the lab, uh, Dr. Um, uh, e. Joan Blanchett Mackey, said, well, then you really should look into maybe like uh, volunteering at a hospital or maybe being a doctor if you like people and the science thing. So I did that. I volunteered in an ER the next summer. I loved it. I basically was like the retractor guy in the suture room for the entire summer. Uh, I have no doctors in my family. I uh, was pre-med in, uh, in undergrad and actually an economics major because I wanted to be pragmatic and have a, a fallback in case I couldn't get into med school. I'm like, oh, I got to get a job. So I'll just be an economics major. And I read this book. And this is during the Clinton administration. I read this book about um, Hillary Care as required reading in a class. And I'm like, oh, Healthcare is a problem, but they're all good. They're, it's going to be solved before I graduate from college. So, yeah, good. And um, and then I, um, you know, this is in the late '90s, 
And um, they were just giving away jobs. You know, you couldn't not get a job graduating from college in the late 90s. And so I went to work for a hospital finance consulting firm uh, for a couple of years before going to medical school, because when I was at that ER working at the hospital, every single doctor I talked to said, whatever you do, do not become a doctor because HMOs and managed care and the government are ruining the practice of medicine. So I'm like, okay, well, I better figure this out and see if I really want to do this before I you know, take the plunge and become a physician. So I worked as a hospital finance consultant for a couple of years because doctors and hospitals don't know how to get paid. So they hire outside consultants to come in and show yeah. them how to do that and learned a ton about coding and all the you know bureaucracy involved with insurance carriers and the government, et cetera, et cetera. Fantastic. Went on to University of Illinois for medical school, thought I wanted to be a policy wonk to try to help solve some of these problems that had not been solved when I was an undergrad. Um, because I'm from Maryland originally, I went back to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore for my residency because that's also where CMS is located. They do a bunch of health services research there. I'm like, this is great. I'll be an academic physician. I'll do research. Um, and then I quickly realized that that was just not a good fit for my personality because I'm too impatient. And I realized that you know research, it's very important, but it's just slow. And I needed to see the fruits of my labor a little faster. And so one of my consulting colleagues and I, we, you know, kept in touch and we're like, hey, you know, and he had become the EVP of finance for a major hospital system here in Dallas. And so he was seeing so much confusion and frustration with people calling into the billing office at the hospital. And I was seeing the same thing at the patient bedside that between the two of us, we actually knew how to navigate people through the healthcare system. So instead of, um, you know, sort of cutting down the rainforest and paving it over and making it easy to cross, we're just like, hey, we're pretty good guides. And we'll just kind of get you around the the jaguars and the snakes and the piranhas and all that stuff because we kind of know what what to do. And so we, you know, it, it wasn't referred to as healthcare navigation or advocacy or whatever. And so anyway, we started uh, Compass Professional Health Services, and this was in two thousand and eight. And that was right when consumer-directed health plans, when HSAs were getting started. So people's copays were going away and they got this money on an HSA debit card and some sort of like, quote unquote, mysterious magical amount was going to be swiped off of that when they went to the doctor or the hospital. And so instead of the person being a healthcare consumer, because they're like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I got a sore throat. I got back pain. I got a fever. I don't know what's going on. So we had these advocates that we called health pros that would take care of all of the administrative, uh, you know, cost, pre-certification, appointment scheduling, finding the doc, fixing problem medical bills, finding lower cost prescriptions, essentially all of the non-clinical stuff, because that was still between the doctor and the patient. But we were essentially the healthcare administrative ninja that made all that happen. And we sold that to employers as part of their benefit fat package. It grew to about 2,000 employer clients, about 1.8 million people. Uh, and we, including like Southwest Airlines and McDonald's and T-Mobile, uh, Chili's Restaurants. And then we uh, sold that business in 2018. And all I did as the chief medical officer of Compass was talk with employers and CEOs and CFOs and heads of HR and brokers and benefits consultants all day, every day for 11 years. That's all I did. Yeah. And there was still a lot of uh, misunderstanding about how healthcare really works amongst the people that I was speaking with. And so I'm like, hey, why don't I just become the world's most uncool YouTuber and start making videos about healthcare finance? So that's what A Healthcare Z is. It's a, it's a healthcare finance YouTube channel that, believe it or not, between YouTube and LinkedIn actually gets about 120,000 views a month. So never in a million years would I have thought that, that many people would be interested in, um, in healthcare finance. But, um, but anyway, and so now um, we're here with patient. That was a very long-winded story, uh, but thank you for being patient with me. 
Oh no, it's great. It's uh, I love hearing the story because these these stories about clinicians that go on to do other things are always so interesting. We don't all wind up at the bedside for our entire careers. I'm I'm very similar. Kind of had a not exactly the same path, but the same sorts of interests, and uh, managed to work my way into the economic and business side of healthcare as well. And I, I try to remind people that being a physician, it's like everything else. It's a degree. You get an MD degree, just like you got an economics degree, and now you're a doctor. The, the degree that you get does not necessarily dictate the thing that you're going to do for the rest of your life. And that's just as true for physicians as it is for everybody else. We can do lots of different things. So I think it's fascinating. Thanks for going through the story and explaining uh, what you've learned. Um, I, you know, one thing that that I am curious about and that I wanted to spend a minute talking, you, you talked about benefits and how you spent 11 years seeing benefits and watching things change and all the way from the 90s and Hillary Care and how that was going to fix everything to sort of where we are today, still trying to figure it out. And something that's on my mind, and of course, on the mind of all of us here at Patient is all about out-of-pocket medical expense and what that looks like and what it means. And so I, I want you to, to talk for a second about what you're seeing in terms of what it takes for people to get that those dollars to pay for care that they need and what you've seen historically as out-of-pocket expenses have gone up. There are a lot now, but it didn't always used to be that way. Could you kind of describe to us what you've seen as the trajectory of that over time? Yep. So out-of-pocket costs um, in America are highly variable. And to a certain extent, they also vary by geography. So interestingly, the the sort of the advent of the high deductible health plan or the consumer directed health plan is there's much great, and this is all Kaiser Family Foundation uh, information. You can look it up in their uh, annual employee benefits survey, but there's much greater utilization of consumer directed and high deductible health plans where there's greater out-of-pocket cost for patients in the Midwest and the South. So if you live in the Northeast or on the West Coast, especially on the West Coast, you still have a ton of HMOs. So people are still kind of paying $25 copays for a lot of stuff. And Kaiser, of course, is real big out there. And then in the Northeast, especially in New England, they have very low deductibles uh, vis-a-vis the rest of the country and very low out-of-pocket costs. So you talk to somebody in Boston, and out-of-pocket costs in general are not as big of a deal because their plans are very different. But in the Midwest and the South, it's a huge deal. Okay, so that's one is that there's some degree of, of geographic variation across America uh, in regards to out-of-pocket cost. Okay, and then number two is those out-of-pocket costs are in general just more than people can afford. It's just too much. And at the end of the day, this is where we talk about America being the wealthiest or one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And everybody knows that there's tremendous amounts of income variability in America. When we say that America is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, that what that means is, is that a very small number of people in America have a lot of money. And actually, the majority of, of Americans don't. Right. So there's a, a many sort of famous surveys from the Federal Reserve that said that, listen, the median household savings in America. So the middle 50 percent have more, 50 percent have less is four thousand five hundred dollars. And that about thirty five, thirty seven percent of U.S. households would not be able to come up with an unexpected five hundred dollars for an emergency. And the vast majority of, of health care costs 
um, are generally like not planned. Like a lot of times you're not like planning to have this cost. And so with your, your average deductible being close to like $1,800, your family deductible is going to be double that. So $3,3600, your out-of-pocket maxes for most of these plans. And oh, by the way, these are also the ACA Obamacare plans are structured in the same way that their individual out-of-pocket maxes are easily six, seven, eight, nine thousand dollars That What that means is, is that the out-of-pocket cost for the majority of Americans in today's health insurance plans, it's just too much. And the point of the, one of the definitions of insurance is it's the transference of risk. You pay a premium and the, the insurance company that's taking the premium is then taking the risk, like your car insurance, right? You don't necessarily have the money to pay for like your car getting totaled and replacing your vehicle, but you're willing to pay $600, $800, $1,200, whatever it is a year to transfer that risk to the car insurance company. Um, but the point is, is that in healthcare, if you're still unable to pay the deductible and the out-of-pocket expenses, you, you essentially have not transferred the financial risk to the health insurance company. You still, as an individual, are bearing enough financial risk to drown you. And so the point is, is that it's high and that it's mainly concentrated in the, the middle of the country not so much on in the Northeast and on the West Coast. But before I get any more long-winded than that, I'll stop. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating. And really, please go on. Like, uh, I, I think that the things you have to say are terrific and and you're so engaging. I just, I'm sitting here thinking and taking notes for myself to uh, think about how to be as engaging as you are as you talk. You, you speak with such passion. Um, so so thanks for the uh, the explanation. And, you know, I, I want to tell our listeners that you used a couple of terms like high deductible health plans and consumer driven health plans. And JR and I have covered that and what that means and um, what those definitions are and kind of why insurance companies do that in the first place. And I'm sure that our fantastic production team, Ryan and Morgan, will put some notes in our show notes. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go back and listen to some of those episodes and get some of those definitions and, and hear about that. So. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank you for that. And what what do you think in terms of the the trends? Do you think that this is changing? Do you feel like these out of pocket expenses are at a point where it must change, or do you think it's going to get worse before it gets better? Like, what are you hearing as you're talking to employers? Yeah. So uh, so great question. So um, what has happened is what's interesting is that in the world of employee benefits the sort of strategically for an employer benefits as part of the overall compensation package, which is really meant to attract and retain employees, right? So you have to understand strategically what the company is trying to accomplish with their quote unquote health insurance, right? So they're, believe it or not, companies are not like, we just want to provide health insurance. No, I mean, ultimately they want to, they want to attract and retain their employees. Like that's their strategic goal. And so as a result of the, um, the, the labor market either being tight, which means unemployment is low, which means it's hard to get uh, employees versus whether or not unemployment is high, which means that it's easier to get employees. That actually has a tremendous impact on the plan design at an employer. And so what happened was that after the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010, when unemployment was high, employers were essentially able to cost shift more of the out-of-pocket cost in the plans to the employees because employees were like, oh, I'm just happy to get any job. And yeah, my deductible might be $2,000 or $4,000 now, but versus like not having a job, I'll take it, 
right? And so that's where you saw then. And oh, by the way, the same thing happened um, in the 90s with HMO. So we had this recession in the early 90s. And so people were like, well, I'm just happy to get whatever job I could get in the early 90s. And they'd be like, okay, but you got to go to this PCP gatekeeper and get permission to see the dermatologist. I'm like, well, I don't really like that setup, but it's better than not having a job. So I'll, t- I'll, I'll take it, right? So that's what happened in the 90s with the explosion of the HMOs. Sorry, you talk about the HMOs and you know the thing I always remember, you probably have the same moment, but do you remember the scene in the movie As Good As It Gets? I, 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 I haven't seen the movie, but I have seen that scene on YouTube. The character just goes off on HMOs. And I remember seeing that in the theater. I remember people clapping in the theater after that diatribe that uh, the character goes on. So if you haven't seen that one, there's a deep cut for you. Yeah, when you see like Hollywood talking about this thing, you know there's like a cultural impact, right? Because nobody listens to healthcare except for crazy people that watch my, you know, A Healthcare is a YouTube channel, right? So, uh, so, so, so there's huge impact on the labor market. So what has happened as a result of the labor market tightening and tightening and tightening, and then with all of the monetary and fiscal stimulus that occurred as a result of the COVID pandemic, is everybody knows the labor market has gotten super tight, and employers have had a really hard time hiring employees. So now what the employees are doing when they're considering job A versus job B versus job C is, okay, what's your deductible on your health plan? Oh, it's $2,000. Forget it. I'm not working here. So now your health insurance benefits are becoming more of an issue for attracting and retaining employees. And so HR departments are going back to their senior leadership. And look, if you're a CEO, ultimately the direction and the path, the ultimate, you know, um, companies are not democracies, okay? Companies are dictatorships, okay? No. So ultimately it's the CEO that, that that makes the budgetary decisions about where the money's going to be spent. They answer to a board of directors, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so the CEO is like, I have an existential problem if I cannot hire people, right? I mean, the CEO's got a gazillion problems every day that he or she needs to deal with. And one of the big ones is if I don't have people to run my business, then I got a huge problem. And so what they're saying is, is that, okay, strategically, I need to do something in regards to my benefits to like be able to attract and retain employees. Now, that's a temporary problem. If we have a recession, that'll change. And the CEO will immediately be like, forget it. $2,000 deductible, as long as we can still hire people, sounds good to me. So, I mean, it's not to sound cold hearted, but it's literally that much of a calculus in terms of just being able to attract and retain people. And it also depends upon then, and that, so that varies by economic cycle. And then it also varies by industry as well. So there's, there's industries where typically like professional services and software programmers, et cetera, et cetera, where it's kind of always hard to hire these people. And so they had, those companies tend to have to have lower out of pocket costs and Bet you know sort of better benefits, if you will, which is why the Northeast and the West Coast tend to have lower out of pocket costs because that's where you have those quote unquote technology skilled workers living. And in the Midwest and the South, we have a bunch of manufacturing where people feel like ah, I can just hire hire anybody, or I can outsource it to Mexico or China, and so I can kind of you know turn the ratchet up on the out of pocket cost on my manufacturing um, employees. So I mean that's a very roughshod, high level description of what's going on. But at the end of the day, employers as of today are saying, look, it really is too much of a cost shift. Like, right. What, what basically has happened is the quote unquote actuarial value of a plan for most plans. And that's like, okay, what percent is covered by the employer? What percent is covered by the employee in terms of their out-of-pocket costs? It used to be 90%. Then it was 80%. It's kind of come down to 70% in a lot of places. And that's been kind of the ouch point 
where now we're like, okay, well, we have to maybe either keep it at 70% and do something more creative or even make it uh, go up a little bit closer to 80% back to where it was in terms of premium contributions and out-of-pocket costs so that our employees aren't screaming bloody murder every time they have to use their insurance card. And um, anyway, again, long-winded answer to your question, but everything goes in cycles, right? So there was the HMO cycle and that kind of went away. And so then there's kind of been the CDHP cycle and that's starting to retreat as well. Yeah, it was a great explanation. So curious to, to dive in a little bit deeper into something that you were talking about with out-of-pocket costs. So so I think of it in terms of kind of three buckets. So like if I get hit by a bus, I'm going to the hospital to get, to get care regardless of whether or not my deductible is $1,000 or $5,000, right? So so very little impact there in terms of out-of-pocket costs on consumer behavior. But then you kind of think about kind of two other buckets. First bucket being maybe that person who goes and gets their you know mammogram and sees something that's abnormal. And due to the costs of the next phase of care and everything, maybe they defer their care a little bit because it's like, well, let's just see if this turns out being something worse. And then you kind of have this third bucket, which is people who just say, I'm not getting care at all because everything I have, like maybe I have type two diabetes and, you know, it's, it's good enough doing what I do at home. I can, maybe I don't, I can, I can control maybe a little bit of what I eat, but by and large, the the symptoms aren't bad enough for me to worry about. So just curious to get your thoughts really on, on buckets two and three in that example of what the impact is for kind of deferring care or not getting care that folks need. Yep. Uh, great topic. And just to add another layer of complexity, it's, it's, actually, it's actually fairly different uh, in men versus women. And so in general, that last bucket that you talked about of people just avoiding care altogether, it tends to be the men that do that. In general, if women have you know something that they feel is not right or having a symptom or just need to get their you know annual physicals, they tend to do a better job of that. In general, women just take care, take, they take care of themselves better than men do. You know, I, I don't know the, the actual reason. Maybe that's why they live longer than men, right? So, so really when we're talking about avoiding care completely, like if you were to stratify it, it's really men and, and that, that, are the, that are the worst offenders of not seeking care um, for lots of reasons. One, they don't want to, it, a lot of it's ego. They don't want to admit weakness. Um, and then two, you know, men tend to be kind of more miserly than women about a lot of things, including their health. And so when we talk about ways that employers can then change things, it's not like it's, it's very important that when you're talking about out-of-pocket costs to employees, that you don't talk about it the same to everybody because out-of-pocket costs are very different to different people. And so the way you talk about out-of-pocket costs varies not only by your gender, male, female, but then it also varies by your age as well. With the biggest breakpoint, actually, it's, it's about 45 is sort of the magic number over 45 versus under 45. And guess what the median age of an employee in America is? It's about 45. And so what happens is, is that in in your 40s, I'm in my 40s, the wheels start coming off. No, you can't stop the march of time, right? Time waits for no man or woman, right? So at the end of the day, if you're a guy in your 20s or a woman in your 20s, like it pretty much works, right? Your body is an amazing thing. You can punish your body you can lose 90% of your kidney function, never know it, never have any symptoms. You can lose 90% of your liver function, never know it, never have any symptoms. We have so much redundancy and mother nature is so amazing at creating this thing that it can take decades of punishment. And then in your mid forties, it starts falling apart. 
you're right. And I'm, I just passed my, my mid forties and I'm in my late forties and you know, you're right. You can lose 90% of your liver function when you are 30 and it's no big deal. Whereas, you know, I'm, I'm 47. And if I walk up the stairs wrong, you know, my knee is hurting for three days and I'm like, what, what happened? It's just, it's, I just walked up the stairs. What, why? That's right. And so what that means is, is specifically to JR, because that's a very important question, right? About those like different buckets. Okay. The point is, is that when you talk about out-of-pocket costs for your both men and women under the age of 45, then you've got to talk about the emergency stuff. Because there it's like, you're not going to do anything preventative for the most part. You got to talk about maternity, obviously. That's the big exception to it. But you're really talking about unexpected stuff and maternity. That's like the biggest thing. Okay. And then when you get to folks that are 45 and over, then you got to talk about things that are more chronic disease related as it relates to hypertension and diabetes and even things like emphysema and COPD as well. Now, that is in like today's world. And I will tell you that the employers that have proactively addressed this because the underlying problem is that if something is too expensive, then you delay the ounce of prevention that's worth a pound of cure. And so you, you don't get the care that you need. And it's not that preventive stuff that's covered at 100% because people are like, oh, well, preventive care is covered at 100%. So it's all free. So it's okay. No, it's not that. It's that you actually treat the hypertension, you treat the diabetes, you treat the small asthma flare-ups, and you don't run out of your inhaler. So you don't have to go to the ER for an asthma attack. So it's really, it's not about just all your quote unquote preventive care. It's actually treating conditions with non-preventive services like blood pressure pills and diabetes pills and inhalers, et cetera. But doing that in a way that people can afford either because you make it low cost or free so that they don't have the ER visit, so that they don't have the heart attack, so that they don't have the cancer diagnosis. Most employers address that through greater use of primary care. And they do that in a handful of ways. One, they either do an on-site or a near-site clinic where they are paying the primary care physicians themselves so that they, the employer, are paying the employee, uh, primary care physicians themselves. So it's not fee-for-service. It's not run through their insurance carrier. And when the employees and their family members go to that doctor, it's either free or it's a very low cost, like $5. Okay? And there's been very, there's, this has been well-documented. Interestingly, the companies in Wisconsin have been very um, proactive in doing this. So there's the book called The Company That Solved Healthcare that's about a company called Serograph that had a free on-site clinic for their employees. And among other things, it allowed them to keep their healthcare costs flat for nine years. I, I asked employers, I said, do, do you wish your healthcare costs were the same that they were nine years ago? And everyone thought, oh, yes, of course, we wish they were the same thing they were nine years ago. And then the other company is called Quad Graphics that also had a primary care clinic, it was five. It was a $5 copay for their employees and their family members to go to that. So you make the primary care super cheap or free. Now for employers, now both of those are manufacturing companies. And those companies have an advantage in that they have a high degree of their employees concentrated in one area. So you can do the clinic. But the problem is, is that so many employers in America are spread out that that is geographically not feasible for a lot of employers. So you have to go through either a virtual primary care type solution where you've got virtual doctors all over the country that can see people, or you have to do it through the existing healthcare system. And then you then have to structure your benefits in a way that makes it very inexpensive or free for people to use primary care. You want people, you want people to overuse primary care. Because if they overuse primary care, 
that means, you know, like, ah, I got a hangnail. I'm going to go see my primary care doctor for free. And you're like, oh, that's such a waste. No, 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 no. Because we know every time, so I'm an internist, I'm a primary care physician for adults. Every time I see a patient, I do something called RHM, which is routine health maintenance. And I'm like, okay, you're here for your hangnail, but you know what? You weigh 330 pounds and you're five foot four. And we got to talk about that. And I'm not here to criticize you, but this is, this is seriously hurting you. And we've got to talk about ways that we can address this. Is this something that you're even interested in talking about? And sometimes they'll start crying and I'll be like, okay, you know, let's, let's go slow. Or maybe it's like, you know, I've tried this, I've tried that. So you, you have to, you have to at least begin the conversation about behavior modification and their lifestyle. I, when I was in medical school, I had one physician tell me, if you can get just one person to quit smoking over the course of your career, then you have been a successful doctor, right? I mean, it's smoking. I mean, everybody knows this, but like smoking is so bad for you. It is so bad. And there's places in America where people still smoke like crazy, right? And you, got, you go in for the hangnail and you have a conversation about cigarettes. So you want people to go in for their little hangnail conversations. You want that. Okay. So again, that's a, that's a long-winded answer, but that's how employers are practically addressing the out-of-pocket cost issue to prevent these huge claimants from coming down the road. Yeah. I remember a statistic about smoking when I was in medical school that uh, just having a conversation with someone, just asking them, hey, you know, you smoke, are you ready to quit smoking? Has about a 3% chance of success. Just by simply asking that question, it might be the trigger that causes somebody to stop. And, you know, it's low probability, but it's also very quick and no cost to ask that question. You can't ask that question if your patients aren't coming in to see you for other things. And so having those primary care touch points is super important. Occasionally, we'll have an employer that we talk to that will tell us, well, you know, I'm worried about my my employees going like, what if I see a spike in claims in primary care? Like, won't that increase my plan expense because it's claims I didn't have last year? And I say, yes, it will. That's good. Because the thing is, you're going to spend a little bit more now, but you're going to stave off so many problems later on. And it's definitely money that's very well spent. Like this is the absolute definition of a return on investment. You spend a little bit now to do this medical care and you're just going to see benefits down the road. Like let's not be short-sighted about how these things are set up and, and trying to get people in to see the primary care doc. Yes. And we saw that too. So we would put in these programs at Compass and you would see the claim spend for people that spent less than $1,000 a year in claims. You saw that go up and you actually want to see that go up because that means you're, you know, you're treating the blood pressure with the $6 a month blood pressure pill. And then now it takes, here's the key. It takes two to three years for it to then kick in on your high cost claimants of less than a, of over $100,000 in a year. And so when we would have these conversations with employers, we would talk about their employee turnover. So for school systems and municipalities and manufacturers and companies that had older employees with lower turnover makes complete sense. But then we would talk to a convenience store. We had literally one convenience store customer that had 80% turnover per year. And we're like, don't do it. it. Makes no sense for you to do that. I'm like, there's a social good in doing that. But when you spend that money and help that person control their diabetes up front, they're not going to be around in three years. And so, listen, at the end of the day, the CEO and the CFO, like that's how they're thinking. And you can criticize them for being insensitive, but they've got a business to run. That's how they think. So rather than saying, you know, hey, you know, you're a bad person, just be like, look, let's talk about your turnover because that's really going to impact what kind of strategies work for you. 
Yeah. And we can get in a lot to, you know, the health of a community and how that helps everyone. And you know what, if you help somebody now and they get a little healthier, but they're not working for you in three years, it's still good for your community. And it's good for, you know, I would argue humanity um, if we're all a little bit healthier and and just taking better care of ourselves. But I'm going to save that topic for another time because that one is fraught. And actually, I think that we're kind of running up on time. So I, um, First of all, I want to tell you, thank you very much, Dr. Bricker, for being with us. Like, this is really fascinating stuff. And I think people are really going to enjoy listening to you and hearing what you have to say. Can you tell us a little bit about your channel? And if people want to hear more from you or they want to get in touch with you, what are the best ways to do that? Yeah. So um, if you just go onto YouTube and type the letter A and then the word healthcare and then the letter Z, A healthcare Z, it's the only A healthcare Z out there, um, then you can see my videos there. Um, you can also find me on LinkedIn. I post all my videos on LinkedIn. And that's probably the best way to get in touch with me is just search up Eric Bricker on LinkedIn and or you can Google me too. It shows up there as well. And you can just message me through LinkedIn. You can follow me on LinkedIn and you can see the videos there uh, as well. And then I also want to say too, that I'm also the, now the new medical director for uh, simple pay and coop health. And so we are also heavily focused on reducing out-of-pocket costs for, um, plan members and patients similar to what patients are doing. So I'm, I, I really want to want to commend all of you at patient for what you are doing in terms of helping people with their out-of-pocket costs, because as I'll just, I'll just end with this. Listen, the reason I do what I do is because the healthcare system itself can take advantage of patients. And that in and of itself is a public health threat. So there are aspects of our healthcare system itself that are like dirty drinking water and are a public health threat. And so I could sit here and try to, you know, try to treat people with dysentery all day long, or I could try to do something to help clean up the water. So that's what I'm trying to do here. And I know that's what you're trying to do at patient as well. So thank you for that. We sure are. And thank you. I've learned so much from you and, and, you know, you've paved the way in a lot of ways, you're a real trailblazer and we appreciate you. Uh, so thank you for being here. And thanks for talking about simple pay. Uh, that's a, it's a great company and a great solution. And I encourage people to go take a look at that. I think that's a, it's a really novel concept and a, a good way to go. Congrats on the new position. Uh, you know, like we talked about at the beginning, we're always reinventing ourselves and figuring out what the next steps are and, and what the cool jobs are that we're going to go along and do. So I hope it's wonderful and it brings you a lot of success and happiness. Um, hey, JR, good luck with the license plates. Uh, are you, are you up to 50 yet? Have you gotten them all? 48, 48. So actually Hawaii, Hawaii this year is one that we're missing. So I'm confident we'll get that in the next little bit. What's the other one? Hawaii and, uh, let's see. The last one was, oh, um, Delaware, Delaware was the last one. Hawaii and Delaware. So everybody out there in podcast listening land, if you see a Hawaii or a Delaware license plate, please please message JR right away and let him know where it is so he can go see it for himself. So he can win this family competition to see all the license plates. It's really important to him and his happiness is important to me. It makes the podcast go a lot better when he's happy. So, uh, so thanks JR for being here. Thank you, Dr. Bricker, Um, Morgan and Ryan. Thank you as always for your help. We really appreciate all of the work that you all put in to make this podcast great. And everybody we'll see you next time. I'm Dr. Jay Moore, and this has been The Patient Podcast. If you'd like to share feedback or contact us directly about this or any other episode, please send an email to podcast at patient.com. 
That's podcast at P-A-Y-T-I-E-N-T dot com. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Bricker, you can find him on the web at www.ahealthcarez.com or follow him on Twitter at at Dr. Eric B. That's at D-R-E-R-I-C-B. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.